This is Agent Provocateur with Alan Walsh and Adam Wilde. Welcome to another Agent Provocateur. I'm Alan Walsh with Adam Wilde. How are you, Adam? One-on-one today, Alan. I'm really good. I love these episodes. They're my favorite. Well, today we're going to do something a little different. We're going to have a discussion between uh, you and I Mm -hmm. on uh, various things that we've teed up. And then we're going to go to some listener questions. Yes. And I know that a lot of people have submitted questions online on uh, Twitter. And uh, I uh, promised that I was going to go back there uh, tonight or tomorrow and scroll through all the questions and give some replies. But uh, you've picked out some special ones yep. uh, to talk about, to put them to me here uh, in this episode. And we'll do that um, after our initial discussion. I, yeah. And I'm, I'm excited for these because some of them are very um, insightful and, and also ones that maybe uh, people just like... So there's one I'm looking at right now, okay? And this is, I think, a really good question considering how things used to be, okay? So we'll do a quick question right now because I know the answer to this already and I know how you're going to answer it. Uh, County uh, said this, can a player ask for non-monetary items in a contract? If so, what's the wildest request you've ever heard of? Now, I know they used to, but there are pretty strict laws governing it now. Uh, There are and there aren't. So... um there's a, a famous story about a number one overall pick in the NHL draft in the early 70s. And after the uh, contract and the term got worked out, and again, it was like the Wild West. There was uh, very few rules regarding contract structure, term, uh It was standard for the club to pay the agent fees. Mm -hmm. And that was negotiated uh, for the better players. The agent would say to the club, and by the way, um, you're going to pay my fees. And the agent fee is 10% and um, we'll submit an invoice to you. Player doesn't pay any fees. And that was fairly standard with most of the better players in the league. Um so this number one overall pick got a or or asked for a baby blue Mercedes Benz <laughs> had not played for had not played one game in the NHL and as part of his uh, first contract there was no entry level system so it wasn't an entry level contract it was just his first contract the club bought the player a baby blue Mercedes and paid all his agent fees. Wow. um, There is a provision in the current CBA that most people don't know about that uh, teams can uh, provide additional items uh, towards uh, a player's compensation, but there's really no advantage to it. And that's why it's never done. Because the, 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 the items will uh, be assessed at a fair market value and then be added into the AAV. Uh, okay. So as long as you're going to do that, you may as well give the player the cash. Exactly. 
They can go do right? it themselves, right? It, 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 right. So uh, technically, it's within the realm of possibility. Mm-hmm. In reality, it has never been done. And and I cannot ever envision it ever being done. Must have been pretty cool for... Although I, I wonder what kind of a scene you make uh, if you're a rookie rolling up to camp... Even if you are a first overall pick with a baby blue Mercedes that the team bought you and all the veterans are looking at you like, you know what I mean? That, that, I feel like that would be, that would be a tough one to overcome. Uh, that would be, uh, that, that would be pretty tough, but I, I'll, you know, I'll refer it to a, a situation that you might remember and many Leaf fans, um, might remember when Steve Stamkos became an unrestricted free agent or was on the verge of becoming an unrestricted free agent, he had a meeting uh, with the Toronto Maple Leafs. And I'm not going on anything that I heard from, you know, any GM, but it was widely reported. Uh, The Maple Leafs uh, sat him down and brought in uh, many of the uh, leading marketing people who put lots of money into hockey and put – uh, to him, a, a marketing package worth several million dollars. And at the time, there was a lot of discussion amongst agents how the league would treat that. The fact that it isn't the player and the agent going out on their own and soliciting marketing deals, which are, uh, which occur on a regular basis. Here's a situation where the club is bringing in people. Some of them happen to perhaps sit on the MLSE board mm-hmm. and, and being able to, and saying, if you sign this contract and come to Toronto, we will commit X dollars to you for marketing. Is that a cap circumvention? I mean, um, it feels a little like it might be, and I'm a Leaf fan, and I would have loved it, but yeah, we we well, since he stayed in Tampa, we never got an answer to that question, but that's certainly something that uh, could possibly come up at some time in the future. So, Alan, I want to first off, if Toronto did it, the the league would have come down hard on them. <laughs> I, I just feel I I honestly do feel like that. Uh, if Chicago does it, it's totally fine. Uh, but if or, or Boston or Philly. Um, but I do feel like there's, you know, uh, there's got to be a couple ways to look at that uh, because, uh, number one, all they're really doing is connecting the player or offering to connect the player with businesses, outside businesses that already spend with Gary's League, right? Uh, and and saying, hey, listen, if you come here, there will be more opportunities than just working for the Toronto Maple Leafs, right? On the other hand, uh, very few cities can do that. So I, I can see both sides. I'm, I, I tend to be on the side of fair, you know, free market. So I would, you know, I think that if you're a New Yorker or you're in, in Miami or Los Angeles or where any of these big money cities are, yeah, I mean, how do you, you can't really get around it. Sometimes there's just advantages to being in those cities. Advantages, yes. But what if those uh, advantages cross over to the club actually bringing the people in and and the and the people who are coming in are saying if mm-hmm. you sign this contract and we're here in the offices with the club you know <laughs> this is what we will put on the table right that's ooh where do you fall on that 
Um, well, I always fall on the side of wanting the players to make as much money as possible. So mm-hmm. in that particular situation, I would vehemently argue that um, th- those uh, marketing deals are are clearly outside the league mandated uh, types of compensation and should never be considered uh, part of the player's AAV uh, or that the club had done anything improper by bringing those deals to the table. And, you know, it's interesting. These are sponsors that spend with the NHL. So you would imagine the NHL wouldn't want to upset them. Uh, so maybe they would kind of back off on that. But why I bring that up, Alan, and why I asked you for your opinion on that is NHL franchise values are exploding. Um, it was reported this really? week. Really? <laughs> Shocking, isn't it? Uh, um, uh, you know, the, the Toronto Maple Leafs are, again, you know, it's between the Rangers and the Leafs, depending on the year. Uh, but the Toronto Maple Leafs are up 25% year over year in franchise value. 25%. Michael Andlauer just sold 10% of the Montreal Canadiens of a value, at a valuation of $2.5 billion because his 10% was sold for $250 million. And, you know, the, the, the companies, Sportico specifically, who is valuing them, is, it doesn't value maybe Montreal that high, although they're in the billions. Um, I, I got to ask you about this. Obviously, players are not going to participate in the asset growth and the asset value, right? The whole point of the cap is to make the league sustainable. Clearly, it's sustainable. Why does that value not play into where the cap is and where it should be? Well, the argument is um, that uh, the NHL economic system is based on uh, defined revenues, And that's what goes into HRR. Uh, It would, um, I I don't necessarily believe that the franchise values themselves and the fact that they are exploding should directly impact the system we have now. Other than the fact, I would argue, the whole reason we have a cap is because Gary Bettman said in 1994-95, unsuccessfully, and in 2004-2005, successfully, that the NHL owners are bleeding money. And franchise values at the time were in the toilet. And buying an NHL team was a no-win proposition. And, and we couldn't get people to buy teams. This is their argument. I'm not agreeing right. with it, right? And teams were being bought and sold at a loss. And horror of horrors, the NHL hired the former head of the Securities and Exchange Commission, a gentleman by the name of Arthur Levitt, to prepare the Levitt report. And that report found... Um, without auditing any of the teams, just talking to all the CFOs and having them selectively send him various documents and pieces of information that NHL salaries comprised 73% of revenues and NHL teams collectively in the year before the 04-05 lockout lost 
$273 million. So the owners and Gary Bettman walked into the CBA meetings, turned their pockets inside out and said, we're all going broke. We're all crying poverty. We have no money. And that's why the players have to agree to a cap. Otherwise, we won't have a league. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, ultimately, we know what happened. The history is the history. And there was a triple heart cap implemented with the uh, initial hard cap number at 39 million in 2005 and off we went what their the system never allowed for was the uh concept like what we have now of franchise values exploding so you don't have a situation where Gary Bettman and the owners are coming back to the players and saying, you know, you guys, you, you, you had it, you had it pretty rough, you know, being locked out a whole year and 2005, the whole system was reset and, uh, the cap was at 39 million and throughout the years we've been going forward, but now, with the franchise values exploding, the fact that the Ottawa Senators were initially bought by Eugene Melnick for about $93 million, and and it was sold to Michael Andlauer, the estate for 900, to the Melnick estate for $950 million. So is there a way... Is there a way for the overall system and the players to benefit from that? And my argument is there should be. When everybody was emptying their pockets inside out, turning them inside out and crying poverty, it was the players that made up for it. It was the players that allowed, you know, all these owners to avoid bankruptcy and economic ruin uh, to be able to go forward. And now that the um, little engine that could has chugged all the way up the hill and every NHL owner is a multi-billionaire and business is booming, what's in it for the players? Well, and so this is what's frustrating too, Alan, because so much of high finance today is about asset value. Very little is about revenue. You know, you see companies, startups bought all the time. I think Uber, when it sold, had never made a dollar. Uh, Spotify took almost 10 years to be profitable. And even sometimes they're not. Um, and and Net- yet there were Netflix, billions. Netflix. Netflix. Billions and billions of dollars. And they don't have positive revenue. As in... They're spending more money than they make. So I find it a bit strange that they went for a deal. And I mean, you know, 20 years ago, things were different. I do find it a bit strange that the cap is based on something that arguably, when you get to that type of asset value, you own the Toronto Maple Leafs, you were $2.5 billion team or whatever, or 265, whatever it was. Um, 
you're probably not trying to make a profit. You're probably trying to hit zero and you're trying to grow the asset, reinvest the money because when you do inevitably go to sell, that's when you're really going to make the money. And I feel like that really limits, I mean, it must limit the cap. Um, and, and, you know, the thing is, is that like, it's not like the players have a whole bunch of write-offs that they can do to, you know, to, to increase things or decrease things. The owners can write everything off. There's so many things about this system that just seems really unfair. And frankly, leads us into our, our second, um, our second question and our second topic. Now we're going to go to one of our, uh, our listeners who sent in this, uh, from, uh, from askalanwalsh at gmail.com. You can always send in a video submission. His name is Drax. He wants to ask you about the triple hard cap and, of course, what's going on with the fact that most teams are now not carrying 23 players. Hey, Alan Walsh, noted agent of many Alan Walsh clients here on the SCPN channel. Uh, question for you. You were very vocal, very, very vocal, especially as a union person, at the beginning of the season on Gary's triple hard cap and how that was contributing to lost jobs in the NHL, teams not able to ice full rosters. My question for you is, okay, magically a genie came along. You are now the GM of all of the NHL. How would you change the process? How would you fix this? How would you make this better? from both a player's perspective and also as a fan's perspective. We want to see the best there is out there. We don't want to have to worry about these cap shenanigans, the ups, the downs, and all the others. So what would you do? That's a, that's a great question. So uh, this year, when uh, NHL teams were required to declare their, their, their 23-man rosters, their rosters at the conclusion of training camp, 48 hours before the start of the NHL regular season, we had uh, some teams carrying 20 players, some teams carrying 21 players, some teams carrying 22 players, and yes, some teams carried 23. In every single situation where a team was not carrying 23, which is the norm Mm -hmm. and always has been the norm. It was salary cap related. Teams did not have enough available salary cap space to add any more players to their roster beyond the 20 or 21 they were forced to carry breaking camp. Mm -hmm. And, and if you add up across the league, all the rosters under 23, it was 30. Now, another way to present that is 30 NHL jobs were gone, lost, yeah. right? Because of the cap. Now, let's go a little bit further back in time. Everyone knows the NHL has done a couple of rounds of expansion. Vegas was 500 million. Seattle was 650 million. The next two teams are likely going to be set at a billion dollars. And folks, the NHL is expanding. It's happening. It's happening sooner than later. Within the next three or four years, for sure, count on it. And that number is going to be a billion dollars 
for each team. And the, and the players don't get any piece of that at all. The argument has always been made to the players. Expansion money is divided between the owners. The players don't get anything. But what the players do get is they get additional jobs. Every team, you know, players benefit by 23 new jobs. Wonderful. Fantastic. Except NHL players have just collectively lost 30 jobs at the, at the middle of October when camps broke and the season starting because teams are capped out. So the owners got all the expansion money, over a billion dollars between Vegas and Seattle. The players were supposed to get 46 new jobs. And instead, they've lost 30 of those new jobs. I mean, that's what's really going on behind. I had somebody, I put this argument to him and he said, well, you still have, uh, uh, you know, a player on a one-way contract. If he, if he's in the American League, if he's in the American League, he's still getting paid. Oh my God. He is, he is out of the NHL. He's not getting any pension credits. He has reduced medical and health and dental benefits, uh, reduced life insurance, career ending disability insurance, all the group benefits that go with being an NHL player, uh, are, are, are gone. And he's playing in the American Hockey League. His value is decreasing. His value, his ability to get his next contract and get the value that he would get if he played in the NHL is greatly reduced. Who's going to compensate him for that? Mm -hmm. So, well, it, and this is something you deal with. And I want to jump in on this one. How how it's it's so normalized to say X player was a cap casualty. So let's say we got Team X. They've got a veteran defenseman and they got a rookie defenseman. And the veteran defense, they want the veteran and the rookie defenseman on the team, but the veteran defenseman has to pass through waivers and they know they're going to lose the veteran defenseman. The rookie doesn't. Rookie's good enough to make the team, still doesn't get to make the team, still doesn't get all of the things that you outlined there, Alan. And we, we also, the fans are not treated to that rookie's talents until somebody gets injured and then the rookie can come up. Right. Right. And you have, you know, guys who signed contracts in the off season, you know, going to be a sixth or seventh defenseman. And if they're the seventh D man, they're almost always on the NHL roster. They're on the ice practicing with NHL players. They're traveling as part of the team and they're in and out of the lineup. If a team is so capped out, so cap constrained that they can only carry six defensemen. And there are a number of teams in the NHL right now that can only carry six defensemen. Uh, you know, you're sitting in one of those cities. Um, you, you know, the, the player, it, it is impacting. So much more than people really see on the surface. And, and there is no remedy. There's no equity that we can create within the system 
to compensate these players for what they're losing now, but even more important, what they might be losing into the future. These jobs are gone and they're not coming back this year. Mm-hmm. And, and you don't see Gary Bettman crying a river over this. No, you don't. No. And, and I, I think what's, what can be frustrating about that discourse and that dialogue is I don't think people understand the, you know, when, when Paul Bissonnette was on the show and he was talking about health benefits and things like that, those things are not really publicized. People really don't know that. You're playing in an American city. Healthcare is not free. You get sent down and then injured in the AHL and you can never play again. You will get less money. End of story. Sure. That's, and, that's unbelievable. And, and the um, American Hockey League's uh, group medical and dental benefits uh, should shock no one are not at the level of NHL players. Mm. And the moment a player is sent down to the American Hockey League, he is now subject to a whole new set of benefits that apply only to minor league players, even if you're on a one-way contract. It's pretty painful to hear that. You know, it's a big risk. And I understand... Being an NHL player is a big risk. It is, uh, but uh, it it does seem a bit strange. And I I think from a fan's perspective, Alan, what can be frustrating for for us is you got these young, exciting players. Everybody loves a young, exciting player making a team out of camp. And when it's like, well, we got to keep the veteran guy because you know we, we can't pass him through waivers. It just feels like the point of this game is the hope and the excitement and the. What if, what if everything goes right and my team wins the cup? What if this kid wins rookie of the year? You know, even though it's an outside shot, it still kind of takes away a little bit of that joy. And we sort of normalized it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, going a, a, a little bit further into this topic, uh, there's something very significant going on right now with the NBA and, and their you know, tournament that they have, mm-hmm. uh, that they've created. You just see the NBA making very smart business decisions with the goal of generating fan interest, media interest, uh, creating an event that is getting worldwide attention and generating a lot of revenue. A lot of revenue, right? Mm-hmm. If you look at the NHL and look at the cap system, what is really the only way to raise player salaries? It's grow the revenue base. HRR. Grow, H- grow HRR. So let's look at what the NHL has done to grow HRR. Have players gone to the Olympics? No. Uh, what about a World Cup best on best? Where where, uh, where where was that? Well, we had a couple in recent memory uh, way back when. Last one was 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, uh, before that was 2000, uh, 2012. Mm-hmm. So where, what is going on here? The and, and and I'll tell you, I'm I'm going to answer my own question. That was a rhetorical question. I'm going to answer my own question here. The NHL has done a piss poor job in growing revenues, and they have not really shown the interest in bringing any creativity to the ideas that are out there in growing revenues. So. Why wouldn't the NHL have, we keep hearing it, regularly scheduled World Cups like clockwork. We don't have to Mm. think about it. We know right now when all the World Cups are going to be. We know right now when all the Olympics are going to be. And and we know we're going to have a robust international schedule of games, best on best, the best hockey players in the world representing their countries and doing that. But what about some, and I'm brainstorming here. I'm taking stuff here out of my pocket and I'm throwing it against the wall. But what about shutting down the league for two weeks, uh, one year and bringing in every NHL team for a big tournament to be played in, in Vegas, um, maybe outdoors, maybe under the dome, uh, uh, in the sphere mm-hmm. and make it three on three. Every team brings in 10 players, right? And uh, three on three hockey, the five minute OT is some of the most exciting. It's, it, it's there's, there's almost no hitting. Mm-hmm. It's all skating and skill and creativity. And, and, and the NHL has these incredible athletes. The game has never had more skill and speed attached to it. Do with bring in every team and we're going to do 10 players. Everyone else, you know, go, go to Florida, go to the Bahamas, go Mexico, go on vacation. Mm -hmm. You've got the best 10 players and why don't you throw $50 million into the pot that the players are going to vie for? And now you got every player's attention mm-hmm. and the winning team is going to get $25 million to split between them. And imagine playing three on three games mid season and have this new trophy, new award. Um, after, you know, three games a day with different teams playing bracketed like a NCAA tournament, boom, go. Now, there could be a whole line of people lined up to say why it won't work, this, that. I, I'm not saying that this is the greatest idea since sliced bread. I'm saying this is the kind of discourse we need to be having to come up with ways to generate more we have the best game mm-hmm. i mean i'm no i would i would rather watch an nhl game live than any other sport in the world we have the most incredible sport with the most incredible athletes and we're not selling it we're not the nhl ratings are a a fucking joke it's a fucking joke the way the game is being. And 
watch out because the Rogers deal, the $5.2 billion Rogers deal is coming to a quick end. ESPN is going to blow their brains out on NBA rights. Disney's trying to offload them. Uh, You know, Where's the money going to be for the rights fees down the road if the NHL isn't doing things to get networks like ESPN, the streamers to say, hey, they're hot. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're young, they're hip, they're hot, and we want to be part of it. See, that's, that's a, that is such a good point. And, and the reason I want to stop you, I don't even know if you realize what a good point that is because I don't think people look at it that way. What did I say? What did I say? I think, no. I think the people think that it's like, well, these are the way things are. And, you know, ESPN will buy NHL or Rogers or Bell in Canada will buy NHL and, and the NHL doesn't have to sell it to them. The NHL absolutely needs to go out and sell itself. If you look at what's happening with the MLS, the way that the MLS really sold that Apple deal that they signed, which is a spectacular deal from a watch standpoint, uh, is that they go out and they got the best player in the world, probably the best player of all time uh, from another league. I mean, it's and it's look at how it's changed into Miami. Alan, I think it's so key. I don't think people realize that people. Okay, I'll I'll tell you, I'll relay this story. This is a secondhand story, but I know of a high end executive in this country who said we're not worried about rights with when it comes to that sport and i won't say which network they're at because the streamers don't care and if the streamers don't care alan if they really don't care about hockey because i'm convinced if a streamer picks up hockey in canada they've won the country you've won the streaming wars if you pick up the 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 rogers package and the tsn package and you bring them all onto netflix or amazon prime or whatever you got the whole country or a good chunk of it they don't realize that you got to be sexy you got to sell this. And I don't think people think of it that way. They just think, oh, well, the NHL is here, so they'll make this. doesn't kind of work that way anymore, does it? It, it, it? There's a whole new world uh, being shaped as we speak uh, with regard to streaming and cord cutting. And what we now know to be the norm um, has – that foundation has been shaken – Mm-hmm. And it's in a transformational phase right now. And if there is not an embracing, a, a, a vision of what the future is going to look like and, and for the NHL to jump into that future with both feet, uh, they are going to be left behind. Mm-hmm. And, and the fear that I have and many people in my position have is that agents and players have, and the NHLPA have literally no say for how the business is being run and what decisions are being made. The league, hear me when I say this, the league doesn't care what the NHLPA thinks doesn't want to hear player ideas. They don't care. They're billionaires. They've made lots of money and they don't have the respect for the union and they don't have the respect for players 
to be able to come up with great ideas that will actually lead to more revenue down the road. It's all about control and exercising power. Whereas when you look at the NBA, I would, my, my sincere opinion, the day that David Stern stepped down and the day that Adam Silver took over was the day that the NBA went into a new realm. Mm-hmm. And what Adam Silver does, yes, he represents the owners. He's the owner's commissioner. But I have a lot of connections with NBA players and people working within the NBA. We had um, an NBA super agent on this podcast last year. Mm-hmm. Um, Octagon represents Steph Curry. And I can tell you, I can tell you, players all the time are sending text messages and speaking with Adam Silver and the players have an important seat at the table when it comes to making big business decisions around the league. And that is not what happened under David Stern. And it certainly isn't what happens and what's been happening in the NHL um, with David Stern's protege, Gary Bettman, for the last 30 plus years. Right. Right. Um, you know, you, you, you mentioned earlier, Alan, um, the World Cup and Olympic participation. We've not really heard anything publicly about a World Cup in 2025, expe- except that there might be one. We haven't heard anything about Olympic participation in 2026 at all, other than the players might go. How committed do you think the league is to either of these events? Well, the league is committed to the extent it's it's currently in the CBA. Um, so there is a um, commitment to go with a couple of important caveats. Um, we've got a four-headed monster here. We have the IOC, we have the IIHF, we have the NHL, and we have the NHLPA. And um, the IOC has been extremely difficult to work with as a partner in bringing the NHL back to the Olympics for a couple of important reasons. Um, the cost of travel is enormous. And in the past, the IOC has been willing to cover the travel expenses to pick up, you know, all these NHL players all across North America and Canada and the U.S. and have them travel en masse to wherever the Olympics are located. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've been unwilling to do that in the last two Olympics. Okay. And there's a a wider negotiation. The um, IOC has been extremely protective of the IP, the intellectual property uh, around the Olympics, including all the clips of games. Mm -hmm. So you're left with the frustrating aspect that technically – NHL.com, 
could not post highlights of an Olympic game between Canada and the U.S. or Finland and Canada uh, with the highlights or a game recap or clips because you'd be violating the IP of the Olympic Olympic rings. Right. And, and, and that is extremely problematic when all the players involved in the games on the ice hockey side are all also on NHL contract. Yeah. And the benefit to the NHL in sending the players is that we're able to promote what's going on over there to the NHL community and grow it from there. And if you can't use the IP and they're saying, give us your players and we're going to use them to make ourselves a ton of money. And we're not going to even let you use the video of, of the games involving your players on, on your platforms. Well, I understand anybody saying I have a problem with that, Mm -hmm. but again, that's, the negotiation. That's not where it's going to end up. Um, and I believe that these initial positions were used as a convenient scapegoat to justify the league saying, well, we can't make a deal, so we're not going to go. Right. In, you know, so you the, just the, take their starting position and you go because no one from an, in a negotiation is starting at the at the finish. No one. And how, and how many times has Gary Bettman said the NHL owners have a great uh, problem shutting down the league for three weeks at a critical time of the year, and we don't see any benefit in sending our players to the Olympics. And and if you if you listen to what gary says he really doesn't want the players to go and no. it ultimately was a concession in collective bargaining to agree that the players can go pending resolution of all these travel and ip issues that go into um making the uh, players attendance at the games viable and feasible. So then I, I, my question to you then is what do they do with the NBA? The players are famously there every year. Like I rewatched the Michael Jordan documentary, uh, the six parter on Netflix, uh, you know, a couple weeks ago, just, just because it was so good. And then they talk about the USA dream team in 1992. Who was picking up that tab? Who's picking up the, the next dream teams tab for, for um, you know, basketball, for tennis, for any of the other spots that uh, that you know take professional athletes and put them in the Olympics. The IOC always made the argument that they didn't pay it for any other sport, and 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 hockey was the only sport that they did pay the travel expenses, and and therefore wanted to be in line with all the other sports. And say we're not paying it for the NHL going forward either. Um, okay. It cost a lot less money to send over a Team USA than it would sending over um, uh, all the Finnish players in the NHL, all the Swedes in the NHL, all the Americans, all the Canadians, mm-hmm. um, and you know all the Czech players. 
um, the German players. There was just so many more players to go over. Um, I remember in Sochi, all the players going over flew into Newark and stayed at the Marriott in Newark at the airport the night before. And the next day, there was a uh, two NHL charters of massive planes for players. And every player was allowed uh, one guest on the charter okay. to, fly, to fly over. Mm-hmm. And I mean... It was a massive endeavor. It was a massive, massive endeavor to get all the players into Newark and then all of them on the charter with their guests and get everybody um, over to Sochi uh, at the time. So then, you know, is there and I'm, I'm going to keep asking you questions on this because I feel like these are going to come up in the comments. Why shouldn't it be on the home country's federation? Why isn't it on Hockey Canada or team or, or USA Hockey or the Swedish or Finnish or German or you know the other countries that are involving themselves in it? And that's why the IIHF is involved. Okay. And that's all part of the negotiation. Okay. So that's yet to be concluded. Then the next question I would have is why not a World Cup? That seems a lot easier. The NHL controls that. They'll do it in a North American city, very likely. Like they did the first, the last one they did was 2016 in Toronto. Not hard to get here. Um, what do you think the holdup is there? Well, the um, World Cup is 50% owned by the NHLPA and 50% owned by the NHL. Okay. So it's a 50 50 property. And, um, as you can well imagine, the uh, relations between the two sides has not always been great. Um, it takes a yeah, I know you're shocked. It takes <laughs> it it takes a phenomenal amount of cooperation and give and take to put on a World Cup and do it right. Mm-hmm. And there is um, logistically still. Um, whether you do it at the, um, onset of the season and play it in September Mm -hmm. when it's not a traditional hockey time for fans to be watching hockey, Mm -hmm. um, or the preferred time would be to do it in, uh, you know, end of January, beginning of February Mm -hmm. in lieu of a, um, all-star break and all-star game. And make it longer um, and and do it at the same time as the Olympics would be going on and have, you know, Olympics every four years, World Cup every two years. You have a robust international schedule of set tournaments that, you know, every two years we're going to have best on best. Um, That's certainly uh, what should have been going on. Yes. And the idea that players like Connor McDavid has never had the opportunity to represent Canada in international comp- uh, competition since the time he became a professional NHL player is, is, is a very sad commentary on the NHL. And I don't blame the NHLPA. I blame the NHL, 
That is 100% on Gary Bettman. Why? You've got the best play because he's not willing to cede, give up any control. Everything about Bettman is about control. He has to control everything. I mean, how ridiculous is it that a player who is suspended less than five NHL games who mm-hmm. appeals his suspension? Who's the judge? Gary. Gary, <laughs> Gary Bettman. <laughs> yeah. You're doing the appeal to Gary Bettman. How insane is that? Is Gary Bettman ever going to overrule his own department of player safety and say, George got it wrong instead of four games, I'm reducing it to two games? No. Not a fat chance, right? So, I mean, it's, but it comes down, why? Why would Gary even want to put himself into that position? Control. I don't get that one either. It's um, control. It's yeah, only about yeah. control. And if Gary can't control it, it ain't going to happen. As a side as a side note, and we don't have to go down this road, I do think it's interesting that when you appeal a suspension in the MLB, you get to play until it's hurt. Uh, right. In the NHL, you, oh, you just get refunded your money. <laughs> like, it's just, you have to sit anyway. I think that's crap. But I, you know, it's funny. You bring up Connor McDavid not representing his country. Connor McDavid is 26 years old. He's been in the NHL eight years. Austin Matthews is 26 years old. He's been in the NHL. Uh, sorry, Connor's going to be 27. Um, Austin's 26. He's never represented uh, his country. And I'm talking about after these guys turned pro. Artemi Panarin has not represented Russia t- since he turned pro in, in North America. Elias Pettersson, Leon Drysaddle for Germany, you know, a, a, an emergent country on the scene with passionate fans too. Uh, it is a really surprising way to run a league, especially when things are increasingly global, Alan. That's, that's the part for me that doesn't make sense. It's like, you know, they were talking about, you know, why Korea and, and China were not necessarily um, big uh, moments for them, it being the NHL, that is, you know, bringing the uh, the players over to the Olympics because, well, you know, how many Korean hockey fans are there really or how many hockey fans in China are there really? I mean, at one point, there was no basketball fans in China. Now basketball is pretty big there. And yeah. China invests huge money in the NBA. Look what happened when Daryl Morey said something about what was going on in China. Big backlash. They hundreds of NBA. millions of dollars. Hundreds of millions of dollars. And and the NBA goes and plays games over there. So don't tell right. me that it can't happen. The NBA is right there. It does happen. So I, I just, it's just a very, it's it's a weird one. But um, I, 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 a lot of people have asked questions about that. I wanted to get to it. My question to you is, okay, so the 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 um, the Olympics and the World Cup. How committed? I asked you about the league. How committed are the PA? to both of those events. Do you get the sense that Marty Walsh and his administration uh, are, I, we know they're far more energetic than Don Fear. We know that. They're involved. Are they committed to this? I'm not going to speak for the NHLPA, but I'm happy to give you my humble opinion um, based on conversations with players uh, going back, you know, 25, 30 years, some of the greatest memories we have mm-hmm. um, as hockey fans 
are, you know, from all the way back to the Summit Series in 72, which started it all, um, Canada Cup 76, uh, 87. Um, there, there have been, there have been incredible tournaments with dramatic moments that have become iconic and ingrained in the lore of, of hockey Mm -hmm. and to, and, and, and every player I know who participated in those tournaments said it was the highlight of their career. And I know players and I believe the NHLPA is incredibly committed to participating and being part of and creating and running a, a world cup and sending players to the Olympics for a best on best tournament on the global world stage. Well, that's good. At least one side is right. Um, <laughs> uh, I want to ask you this one because it's a, and it's a personal question. How much are, are the, the league head office, uh, the negotiators for the next CBA, Gary Bettman and Bill Daly and everybody else who's involved. There's a whole team of people. How much are they using this carrot as a negotiating ploy? How much are they using the player's desire to play in a tournament as a way to get things passed that they normally probably wouldn't get into a CBA? I'm sure that um, there have been, we know there have been several attempts in the past where Gary has said, um, if the players really want a World Cup and they want to go to the Olympics, um, they're going to have to give us something for the league to allow it, mm-hmm. um, which blows my mind. You know, that a, a, and he said it publicly a few times that yeah. you, you would hold the Olympics in a World Cup hostage, right? over getting some concession in collective bargaining. Like, can't we get past the gamesmanship and do what's right for the game? You know, there's a lot of talk about the good of the game, the good of the game, protecting the good of the game, the integrity of the game. But the people who have been running this league for 30 years have always put individual interests um, and pettiness ahead of the good of the game. And they've always put it out on the players. Well, you guys, you guys better do what's right for the good of the game. And the people that are saying it are the biggest hypocrites in the world. Because time after time after time, when it, when it's up to them to do what's good for the game, they always put their own self interests ahead. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, um, if I were to ask you very quickly before we get to some more listener questions, what kind of damage this does to hockey in the long term? You know, the last Olympics were 2014, last World Cup 2016, named all these players that haven't done it. You know, in real terms, what damage um, has this done to the sport of hockey, of which the NHL is the leading league? 
You know, there, there was a time in 1994 when the New York Rangers won the Stanley Cup, ending the long drought, where hockey was as hot as it ever could be. Mm-hmm. And I've talked about this before. Um, there was a Sports Illustrated cover, and the cover said, the NHL is hot, the NBA is not. And at the time, the NHL and the NBA were very close to each other in league-wide revenues. I repeat, the two leagues, if you want to just contemplate that for a second, the two leagues were close to each other in league-wide revenues. I remember NBA games being played, playoff games, mm-hmm. on a tape-delayed basis on CBS at 11.30 after the local news. The games were played in the evening in prime time. They weren't on. They weren't broadcast. They're being broadcast tape-delayed at 11.30 p.m. Oh that was the gosh. national that- TV contract of the NBA. And, and you, the Rangers won the Cup. The NHL was poised to explode. And what happened? We went into the 94-95 season. Gary Bettman locked the players out. It lasted half a season. Uh, He insisted on a salary cap. He ultimately relented. And we did a CBA with no salary cap that went on for 10 more years thereafter. But all the momentum from the Rangers winning the cup was sucked out of the system. Uh, the, the, the media, it was nasty. It was a nasty fight. The media was down on hockey was just disgusted with what happened. Um, there was a lot of hostility and tension between the league and the players, the PA and the league, and it killed all the momentum and goodwill mm-hmm. that was generated. And I always look back to, to 94, 95 and, and wonder wistfully what what could have been what could have been if it if it didn't play out the way it did well and and alan what happened the season before in a different sport mlb mlb you lost the world series and and it took fans 10 years in certain cities to come back 10 years 10 years i mean it's it was uh, I, I don't know. It's just it's wild to think about about it like that. But that's what happened. Yeah. Um, so uh, with all that said, uh, we got a ton of great questions uh, and we're going to start with our second video submission here. Uh, and this one comes from a guy named Adam. Great name. Adam Burke. Uh, he is a young agent in training and an agent, prote- uh, agent protege, shall we say. And he wants to know what you think he can be doing outside of going to school to become an agent like yourself. Hi there, Alan. Uh, I really appreciate your time for doing this. Uh, I am currently preparing to go to law school myself next year. 
Uh, in the meantime, or once I get there, is there any organizations or foundations that I can maybe get involved with to try and help gain some experience and to make some connections that can help me along my journey in the sports law industry? Uh, I really appreciate your time once again. Thank you so much. There are some organizations out there. Uh, the Sports Lawyers Association is a wonderful organization. They have a student membership. I would definitely uh, become a student member there. Um, I would uh, buy every single book ever written by an agent or about the agent business, whether in sports or entertainment, where there is lots of crossover in experiences uh, and, and some of the stories. Um, apply uh, the lessons, apply uh, both to sports and entertainment. Um, I would, I would become a walking, talking hockey encyclopedia, not about player stats, not about, um, you know, who, who's got the best coursey, but about the business side of the game. Uh, it amazes me how many times I've had law students, you know, sitting in my office wanting to become interns or looking for entry level positions in the agency. And I start talking to them about the history of collective bargaining in the NHL. And it's a blank slate. If you don't have that knowledge, if you haven't gone out on your own and learned about the founding of the PA in 1967, the Alan Eagleson era, what went on during those years, um, the movement to uh, fire Eagleson, him being indicted, convicted and imprisoned over things that he did while he was running the NHLPA, the transition from the Eagleson era to the Bob Goodenow era. I mean, th this needs to become, as a young aspiring agent, part of your DNA. And if you're not prepared to make that commitment to become an absolute expert in all of that, and I'm giving you a 35,000 seat overview, mm -hmm. but you need, there is a lot of stuff that has gone on and, and, and really, um, you have to understand that everybody on the league side lived it. Yes. And they know, they know what happened, right? They, they, they understand how things got to where they are today. And if you think you're a well-rounded, um, aspiring agent and you can put today's player stats into your head. Well, that's great, but I can jump on my laptop and I can put together the most beautiful reports and comps and, 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 and put together a negotiation file and I could train somebody how to do that very quickly, mm -hmm. but I can't teach them the history. And I had somebody say to me once when I was talking about this, it wasn't a young guy, but it was somebody else who said, 
you know, what's the point of all that? You know, like, do, 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 you, do you really need to be living in the past? And are, hmm. are, are you trying to refight the battles that have been lost? And my argument to them back is, I'm not trying in any way to refight lost battles, mm-hmm. but don't ever discount that those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. And unless you know what happened, you're going to walk into the same traps and step into the same quicksand of many people who've come before you. And as a player, as a young player in the league, my job, an agent's job, is to educate that player on his place in history, mm-hmm. right? He is yeah. in the league today because he's standing on the shoulders of all the legends who came before him. And it's not enough just yeah. to know their names. It's not enough to go on YouTube and watch a couple of highlights. Yep. You need to know everything that happened so that you can sit there and properly educate your own players on their place in history, their place in the game and, and understand enough to have the respect and knowledge and understanding of the shoulders they're standing on. Yeah. I I love that. Um, Some of the questions here, uh, today are a lot of fun. We got William from Calgary. Who would be the best g- client GM uh, and coach restaurant combo for maximum entertainment over dinner? So if you could pick three people uh, for maximum hilarity, are you allowed to say that or would be would picking one uh, hurt some feelings? Um, could I pick anybody in the game? Anybody in the game. Uh, we're looking for one client, like one player, client, one general manager, one coach. Okay, so um, I, I, I would uh, go into any meal mm-hmm. um, excited and looking forward to hear from Mike Rupp, who is a longtime client yes. of mine, who we all listen to on NHL Network and, and broadcasting NHL games. Um, every conversation with him is an adventure in and of itself mm-hmm. in hilarity and his deep, deep insight and analysis uh, into the game, um, it's second to none. Mm-hmm. And I would also uh, maybe surprise some of the people out there and maybe surprise you. Um, I've had some incredible conversations and incredible moments with Lou Lamorello. Wow. And I find, I find Lou to be um, uh, a, a fascinating individual with an incredible background that many people are not aware of. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you spend some time with Lou and you start talking about uh, some of his experiences in the past and a whole door opens up that you never knew existed 
about the world that he lived in back then um, from his involvement in baseball as a manager in Quebec semi-pro baseball in Thetford Mines um, (laughs) to many of the other things that he did um, and he experienced that uh, people would, would never believe it. Is he a tough negotiator? Uh, he's a t- everybody you deal with are, are tough negotiators. Lou's a, a tough negotiator for sure. But I represented a lot of players on the New Jersey Devils back in the day from Patrick Eliash to Marek Zidlitsky to Peter Sikora that all played for Lou. And I did a lot of deals with Lou over the years. Um, Lou's a deal maker. Mm. Right. Lou, Lou one time said to me, Alan, um, you can drive a hard bargain and end up with no players. So Lou was a realist in that um, ultimately you had to make a deal. Mm-hmm. How you got to the point of saying across the table to each other, we have a deal um, could go a lot of different ways. But I always found Lou to be um, forthright. He was a straight shooter and ultimately someone I would call a deal maker. Matt Levergood on Twitter uh, says, what's your biggest pet peeve in a negotiation with a GM or front office? I don't I don't he doesn't want you to name names. He just wants to know in a negotiation. What's kind of like a uh, thing? Um. Let's just uh, split the difference down the middle. Okay. Okay. I, I'm not a split the difference down the middle kind of guy. <laughs> okay. Okay. And every time I hear, what about splitting the difference down the middle? To me, that's like fingernails on a chalkboard. I, I, I cringe. Uh, n- no. <laughs> I've, I've I've done a lot of work and 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 um a lot of work behind the scenes to get to the position that we're in that we're mm-hmm. where we're at and I don't believe just splitting the difference down the middle um is conducive to showing any real faith and belief in the case that you built Right, right. Of uh, no, I'm not yeah. throw. I'm not throwing everything that I've just said over the last three months, or four months, or six months, um, out the window, just to split the difference down the middle. I like that. Okay, uh, from Tyler Punlock. Uh, in a perfect world where all of your clients are signed to long-term, multi-million-dollar extensions, let's say everybody on the roster is locked up, what do you do? Like (laughs) now I know, I know the answer to this, but I figured you would, I figured you would like this question. Go recruit more players, son. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Tyler Vladal uh, wants to ask uh, if someone is looking for a career change and wants to become an agent, can you still do it at 35 plus? Absolutely. And where would you start? Law school? Uh, you know, I, I, I've been asked over and over and over again, do you, do you need to be 
a lawyer to be an agent? And the short answer is you don't. But if somebody is asking me my opinion, if mm -hmm. somebody is asking me for advice, I would always value a law degree or an MBA um, mm -hmm. as, a, as a differentiator and a difference maker when it comes to um, your foundation in, in, in then entering into the agent business. I believe that um, you don't necessarily had to have practiced law. Um, you know, I was a trial lawyer. I was mm -hmm. a prosecutor for five years. It's kind of unique. I don't know any other ex-prosecutors who are agents, uh, at least in the NHL. Um, but I do think having legal training and, and the, the tools that you acquire going through law school, thinking like a lawyer and, and you do think in a specific way, um, after law school, as opposed to before or having never attended, that's my own personal preference, but by no means is that a definitive answer or even the right answer? That's just my opinion. Um, we already, Canuck Guru, whose name's Drew, uh, we already sort of had this question off the top of the show, so I'm not going to ask the question, but I thought I'd pass along the compliment. Your boy Ronick is a, an absolute stud. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he is. <laughs> um, really going well for him in uh, Vancouver. Really cool. Um, the next one from Nicholas Egan. Uh, how much longer do you want to be a player agent before you don't want to do it anymore and retire? There is um, nothing else that I would rather be doing. I wake up every morning with um, the feeling like I got a stick up my back. Um, I attack my day. I love what I do. I truly truly love it and i understand and appreciate how blessed i am in this world to be doing something that i love and have such passion for and uh i have never given any thoughts to retirement or wow. what i would do after uh i i, I can't even contemplate my life, um, you know, not being an agent. Um, you know, I can't contemplate a life after. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that um, whether, you, you know, people think it's good news or bad news, <laughs> um, you're going to have a lot of Alan Walsh to deal with for many, many years to come. Hey, it's good for us at STPN. I'm happy to hear that. Um Hey, do higher end players ever say, I don't care what they offer. Just get what you can and keep me here with my current team. Um, there have been a few situations of players um, near the end of their career who, you know, maybe want to play in their hometown mm -hmm. or want to play in a particular city for uh, a multitude of different reasons who say, Hey, just give me the minimum and I'm going to go and play there. You know, I've made, I've made a lot of money and I'm financially secure. And now for the last one, two or three years of my career, that's where 
I want to play. Mm-hmm. And I've had uh, a couple of situations where a player has said that. My number one rule, always listen to the player. You can give advice. Mm-hmm. You can give an opinion. But the player is always making the decisions. And whatever the decisions are, whether it was what you advised, Mm -hmm. um, whether it goes uh, in favor of or contrary to your opinion, you follow what the player wants. Listen carefully. And then your job is to implement what the player wants. Last question from Kevin. And it's three-parter, but I'm going to ask the first two parts first, and then I'll ask the third. Do you have a capacity? Would you turn down players who specifically want your representation because you may not have the time slash energy? Now, I know, Alan, that you sleep like three hours a night. Yeah. So you got more time than the average guy. You and, my uh, and wife, that, you and my wife know that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and 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 our and our dog, our sleep deprived yeah. dog. <laughs> and I know that that there are some people that are just genetically like that. You happen to be one of them. Um, but you know, have you ever thought about, hey, I could probably only take X amount of clients? Uh, no, from from a uh, a capacity or a energy or a time perspective. Um, I I am somebody who is a unapologetic, uh, uh, unabashed workaholic. Um, it's it's what I am. Um, I admit it. You know, hi, I'm Alan. I'm a workaholic. Um, <laughs> hi, Alan. And hi, Alan. Um, <laughs> and it's just it's it's just the way I am. And I would uh, I I have I have declined to represent players for various reasons over the last almost 30 years in this business. Mm -hmm. But I have never uh, declined to represent somebody because I didn't think I had the energy or the time to represent them. Now, this last one is one that I know you're passionate about. And that's why I want to ask this question. I think this is really important, especially for a guy like you, Kevin, Third and final part of the question was, does higher earning potential equate to better representation? (laughs) Uh, Absolutely not. And I'll tell you that um, a a great amount of energy and time is spent with players on the bubble Mm -hmm. or players who are in the minors trying to get to the NHL. Um, I, not at all. I mean, I can't speak for other people, but I one time had a player I represented who was a career fourth line player. And, um, when, and, and we were very close and, and we remain close to this day. And when he retired, um, you know, we had lots of conversations leading up to retirement, but there was this one conversation that was really special to me. And he said to me, you know something, Alan, um, I, I just, 
you, you know, it was the day that he announced his retirement. It was an emotional day for him and his family. Mm-hmm. And he said, I just want to thank you for everything you did for me and for my family. He said, I, I have to tell you, you know, I, I know I didn't make you the most money out of the clients you represent. Um, but I never felt one inch less important to you than anyone else that you represented. And I used to think like, oh my God, this guy believes in me and is working for me. I don't want to let him down. He goes, I actually had anxiety. He says that I talked about with my wife about how I didn't want to let you down. Um, And you gave me um, extra motivation uh, because you believed in me when a lot of people didn't. And that's what I want to thank you for. And uh, it, it was one of the, I mean, I had, I had tears in my eyes and it was one of the moments that I'll cherish as an agent forever. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it, you know, it, I, I don't, I don't care what, once you're a client, you know, I don't care if you're a fourth line guy or a minor leaguer, you know, we're there for you. I'm there for you, whatever you need, because that's sort of the bond that we have together. And in many respects, you spend more time and energy and, and, and thought and strategizing with players who are trying to break in or mm-hmm. trying to advance from where they are higher up in the lineup. Um, you spend more time there than you do uh, with anybody else that you represent. Right. Right. Well, I, I wanted to ask that question specifically because I know every year we get some form of that question when we do these episodes. And, you know, as we continue to grow the show, grab new people, um, I think it's important to, to, that people hear you say that. The other thing I, I love about you answering questions like that is, you know, a lot of and, and the person that I knew on Twitter when I called you for the first time, Alan, to put this show together was the bombastic and educated and fiery Alan Walsh, which I love. We get that on this show. I love that. That's why we wanted to do the show with you. But what we also get is the loyal, uh, heartwarming and sentimental person that you are. And I think that's what's so cool about you as an agent is there's such a human element to this um, for you. You care about these guys. Yeah. And here are all these, you know, couple of years together. I thought it was my good looks. (laughs) well it was obviously that too (laughs) all right alan this was a blast uh thank you so much for for making the time i know it's been a crazy couple weeks for you um and we'll be back in another couple weeks with us probably a surprise guest or something we haven't even figured it out yet but uh thanks so much you got it great to uh answer questions and share some stories um thanks adam for everything you do and uh Jesse, I know you're out there. Thank you for everything (laughs) you do as well. Take care, guys. Have a great one. 
This has been Agent Provocateur with Alan Walsh and Adam Wilde. Follow Alan Walsh on Twitter at Walsh A. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts by searching Agent Provocateur and hitting the subscribe button. YouTube.com slash SDPN. 